Before I begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I record this episode, the Darug and the Buramatagol people. I would like to pay my respects to elders both past, present and future. On this episode of The Female Drive... Is this really the thing that I'm part of that, that made this happen? You know, there's psychological detachment there, I guess, because you think, oh, it can't, it can't be what I did, you know. G'day, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Female Drive. My guest on today's show has been a champion for change within the motorsport world. A driver himself, he noticed a huge lack of representation for the LGBTQ plus community within the sport. One day, after being inspired by other campaigns within other sporting codes, he decided to do something about it. This in turn got the ball rolling and not long after, Racing Pride was born. And in association with Stonewall UK, they are making huge changes in the world of motorsport, ultimately making the environment a safer and more inclusive one. I'd like to welcome my guest on today's show, Richard Morris. Hey, Richard, how are you? Hey, yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thanks so much for joining me. I know it's kind of early over there, so I really appreciate you waking up and jumping straight onto a podcast. Yeah, not a problem at all. It's actually bright and sunny here, which is uh, a little bit unusual for England in the autumn, but we're all good. You know, when I lived in England, everyone used to always say, how could you live there? It's always rainy and miserable. And I actually had better weather than I thought I would. I had had really good weather the majority of the time I lived there. (laughs) Well, lucky you is all I can say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's jump straight into it. Can you talk to me a little bit about like um, you as a child and what your hobbies and your passions were and I guess in the end how you got into motorsport? Yeah, so uh, I got into motorsport essentially because I was always obsessed with uh, speed (laughs) and uh, I was the sort of kid who used to push toy cars around. Uh, As a toddler, I'd push them around my grandmother's living room and stuff. And my dad was very into cars and motorsport. He'd mechanicked for my godfather in sort of amateur racing um, a couple of decades before. And uh, that was into the Formula Ford and junior single seaters and things. Um, And he watched Formula One all the time, uh, every race, and uh, I'd watch it with him. And (laughs) eventually I learned a little bit about what was going on. I really loved uh, Michael Schumacher because he had the multicolored Benetton car (laughs) at the time. And uh, my uh, little toddler eye was drawn to the multicolored car. So uh, I'm I'm glad of the choice toddler Richard made. I'm very proud to have supported Michael Schumacher and, you know, clearly – had an eye for the talent somehow, but it was mostly about the the multicolored car. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I just loved everything. Fast, but, <laughs> Doesn't um, matter how you got there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I didn't actually get a chance to to try driving anything till um, for a professional driver relatively late on. I was about twelve years old when I drove a arrive and drive corporate go kart for the first time for a friend's birthday party and uh, I was really grateful uh, to my friend for inviting me because I'd been itching to like have a go at some sort of motorsport but didn't really know where to start and um, yeah invited me along to this party and I tried driving a kart and uh, had a great time and and, um, yeah managed to win this little fastest lap shootout contest and so I went back and practiced some more and, and things went from there. Isn't it funny how you say you got into it late at life at 12? <laughs> <laughs> well, for a professional driver, that's quite late. But, uh, you know, it's not it's not six, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know you hear sometimes these carters that literally are thrown into a Bambino cart at six and you're just like, oh, my goodness, I don't even know if I knew my ABCs then. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your dream as a child? So you talked about getting into karting quite late. Did you have other dreams or aspirations obviously outside of motorsport like 
you know when you're younger and you 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 think you know what you want to be when you grow up what what was you you what did you want to be <laughs> um I'm not sure I ever really knew um I mean I did other kind of sports and and activities and things so uh originally I just wanted to uh go fast and so strange as this sounds I did uh horse riding because I figured until I could drive a car on the road, <laughs> galloping a horse was the fastest I could go. Um, so, uh, And also because I loved horses and they're great animals and all the rest and I still love them. But uh, some of it was definitely about the speed and freedom of just like going fast. And uh, anyway, so I started doing that before I started karting. And the other thing, um, and something which actually kind of impacted the timeline of my racing career was I got into fencing and sword fighting, essentially, um, when I was a kid. Um, I I say I don't know what I wanted to be. I guess I wanted to be a medieval knight. Um, so I, <laughs> I, I love those sort of films and, and, and all that kind of thing. And I used to play with swords with uh, my brother in the, in the garden. And uh, so one day someone said, well, why don't you try fencing in Olympic sport um, based around sword fighting? So... I did that and um, I got pretty heavily into that from sort of the age of nine. And I ended up um, doing it alongside all my karting career and things. Um, And uh, I ended up fencing for England and Great Britain at World Cup level. Um, And that was a major focus of my sort of sporting life um, right up until uh, 2017, which is when I transitioned into car racing, single seaters and Formula Ford. And at that point, I um, essentially decided that I was going to have to choose a path between motorsport and fencing. And I had achieved what I wanted to in fencing. I'd uh, There's a, a competition called the Five Nations, which is essentially like Rugby Six Nations, um, except without Italy, uh, for fencing. I'd competed in that for England and won it three times. Um, I'd um yeah done various bits of international fencing uh won various titles in britain and thought you know what i've i've done basically what i wanted to do in fencing but there's so much more i want to do in motorsport so yeah 2017 i shifted my focus to to the motorsport and and that's kind of where it's taken off from yeah and i i suppose i mean i i don't even like the question of asking like what you wanted to be when you grow up because it goes against my belief of that you can do various things and you've you've obviously done that that's incredible the fact that you've you've had this amazing fencing career and now you're going into another and then and even through motorsport now you've got all these other things that are happening it it's incredible how one thing can lead you to another <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm not great at uh only focusing on one thing to be honest i i'm one of those people who just uh always has to be doing stuff <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I completely understand that. <laughs> that's that's I I totally totally understand that. So you moved into Formula Ford. How was that experience for you? Uh, yeah, it was it was really uh, exciting um, and felt like a big step at the time. I'm mean, not so much in terms of the driving. So I've been racing. 250 gearbox supercarts, which are the fastest carts you can race anywhere in the world. Uh, absolutely ridiculous things. Um, they're basically a bare chassis with a huge motorbike engine on it. Um, and they do not to 60 in less than three seconds and top speeds of upwards of 120 miles an hour in a cart, which is just madness. So I was used to driving things yeah. fast, but um, the step into Formula Ford, yep. I think, was a step in professionalism you know and and um a slightly different approach i mean the stakes were all higher obviously the money involved in the racing was going up the you know you can't just bump a race car and carry on it's different to karting in that respect um i had to have more kind of relationships with sponsors and also just the um, race meetings, I was competing initially at Castle Coombe, which gets an amazing crowd um, for, um, you know, British domestic racing, um, thousands of people watching. And I just absolutely loved the buzz of that and, uh, yeah, everything with it. So, yeah, it was. It felt like a huge step. I think driving-wise, I felt at home in the car after just a couple of sessions, but the change in everything that went around racing was the big shift. 
Yeah. And how how did you transition from that into where you are now? Like obviously you've what year was that when you started in Formula Four? So that was 2017. Um and my first year, um, as I say I focused on the Castle Coombe Championship and that went well. Um so there were uh eight races and I qualified on pole for my first race and for seven of the eight races um and got my first win on my third start um and won four out of the eight races so that was a really strong sort of debut season uh there were some mistakes in there too but overall it went well um and (laughs) we decided from there with the team to to do the national championship the the next year um and that was a big stretch in 2018 um, because the national championship is very serious. There's some great drivers in it. It's very close and competitive. And to be honest, we didn't have the budget to do it properly. We went along, but we didn't really have the budget to sort of do it properly. So what we decided to do was to help that by doing fewer rounds and missed a couple of the events, um, which was a bit frustrating for me. But still, we finished. Um, I was vice champion um in the series despite missing two events so again the success was there but the the budget was becoming really a struggle um and Mm. fortunately Mm. i'd um already met at the start of that season uh, a man called paul uh, paul nightingale who owned a company and race team called spire sports cars and i've been talking to him through the season And he had a works driver who he put out in one of his factory built cars. um, And that works driver was retiring. And he said that in the summer. And so we started talking a bit more. And in the autumn of 2018, I went and tested this Spire Sports Cars uh, sports prototype car. And the test went extremely well. Um, I think within a couple of sessions, I was setting lap times that are qualifying on the front row in that series. And and um, uh, Paul said, you know, given the results you've had elsewhere and given how well you've gone today, you know, I'd like you to come and, and be my works driver next year. So that was a huge opportunity in my career because for the first time in my career, I'd not had to worry about where's the funding coming from for this or how am I going to get into a team with with equipment I can compete in um all I had to think about was the racing so in 2019 and 2020 that's what I did I was works driver spy sports cars and um yeah we had a lot of success um it it went extremely well um I think just trying to remember I think we had um I think it was 15 podiums from 20 races um and last year um, COVID affected, but we had eight races, got seven podiums. Um, it was only four race meetings, but we won at three of them um, and set a lap record and four fastest laps. So, yeah, it was a great season. And essentially what I was doing in the sports prototypes and the sports 1000s um, is what got me to where I am this year. So uh, in 2019, my main rival um, was the works driver for the rival manufacturer, um, which was Mattel Cars, and the driver was uh, Chippy Wesmail, Chris, uh, Christopher Wesmail. Um, and he is now my teammate um, because we developed such respect for each other out of that rivalry. And he asked me midway through last season, um, would you come with me? I'm going to go and do this exciting project with Praga. Um, in the Brit Car Endurance Championship, which is what I'm competing in now. Um, And yeah, that's uh, been an amazing opportunity. I'm sure we'll talk more about it, but incredible series. And the Praga car is a fantastic car. It's very similar to an LMP car. It's an all-carbon fibre, lightweight prototype um, with the engine out of a Formula Renault with a turbocharger on it. Um, and it only weighs 600 kilos and chucks out best part of 400 horsepower. So, yeah, they're fantastic things to drive. 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> so talk, talk to us a little bit more about that. So you, you've already given me my lead way. Um, talk to us a little bit about Brit Car Endurance and you've, you've talked about the car and how it's like similar to an LMP. Um, but talk to us a little bit more, like when we talk about endurance, how long, you know, what, what are the aspects for anyone that's not familiar with what it is? Yeah, so uh, the Brit Car Endurance Championship um, has a mixture of different cars competing. Um, it's a multi-class structure, so there's one big overall race, um, but positions are also given out for cars within their class. Um, and at the front of the field, you have nine Praga cars that are all identical, uh, or you know, as near as you can get identical Pragas. Um, but you also have classes for GT3 cars. So there's some fantastic GT3 cars out there. There's a beautiful McLaren GT3. Um, you have GT4s too. Uh, so we've got a mixture of Aston Martins and uh, things like that. Um, there's uh, the Ferrari Challenge cars that come out to play with us. Uh, a huge mix of sort of high-powered GT and prototype race cars. Um, and the grids are up to, up to about 40 cars. Um, and we compete in races that are an hour long each, um, or usually an hour long each. There was a special race at Silverstone in the summer on the Grand Prix circuit that was two hours. Um, and we swap halfway through the race. So each car has two drivers and you swap in the pit stop. And what it makes for is, Absolute chaos, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> quite a spectacle. Um, you know, amazing racing to watch. And, uh, you know, one of the skills of it is uh, if you're in a car like the Praga that's at the front of the field, it's sort of picking your way through how you lap people, where you pass people, not losing time, um, which I think was also one of the things that really, really struck me um, when I was testing the Praga because um, mm. it feels so stable. And even compared to cars I was driving in the past, in a way, it kind of feels easy to push it pretty hard because it's got so much grip. So you don't really realize how fast you're going until you just absolutely blast past like a Ferrari Challenge yeah. car or a GT4 car. And you're like, oh, yeah, we're going pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's more common in endurance racing to have, you know, different types of car competing against each other. Um, yeah. You know, at Le Mans, you've got the GTs and the prototypes competing together. And yeah, it's kind of, that's the model for it. But yeah, it's just, it's just really exciting to have such a big grid, big paddock and just some spectacular cars. Um, yeah. And it, it's just been such an experience really. And you just kind of mentioned Le Mans. And I think when we think of endurance, we think of Le Mans. I think that's, that's the first place you go to in your head as a motorsport fan. Why is this class called endurance if they're hour-long races? <laughs> um, because uh, domestically speaking, it is still quite rare to have races that are uh, an hour or more. I mean, usually in... Um, British domestic motorsport, you're lucky if you get a race longer than sort of 20 minutes. Uh, and that essentially, I think, is just because of the the way the business of motorsport operates. You need to have lots of um, series racing on the same day in order for the promoters to get their money, basically. So uh, you tend to only have short races, whereas, um, yeah, this series, I know an hour doesn't seem like that long, but um, it is, you know, double or triple the length of a lot of the other series that go on in Britain. And I think the other thing is these are, you know, endurance cars and, and they're built for the long races. Um, although I have to say, if you're driving a, a prototype like the Praga, which doesn't have any power steering, um, but uh, generates, you know, four or five G in the in the corners, you're uh, you're going to feel Oof. it after an hour. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I can't even imagine what that does to the body. <laughs> Something I'm never going to experience anyway. <laughs> so I'm just going to quickly go back. You talked about how the 2020 season was impacted um, by the coronavirus pandemic. 
Um, and in that time, even though you mentioned you were doing some races, you also became an NHS volunteer responder, which for anyone outside of the UK, the NHS is the National Health Service. Um, and and you got into that. But how did that come about? And, and it, did it stem for that thing of we were talking about before about how you can't just do one thing? <laughs> yeah, so um, it was really strange that season because um, we'd um, – you know, plan to really build on the 2019 season. The team had built me a brand new car for 2020 with some upgrades and a few uh, changes. Um, and we'd just gone out and started testing it. Um, I'd done one test day in it um, in March. And then before the next test day, we'd got three scheduled on pretty much back-to-back weeks. Um, before the second one, um, everyone started talking about coronavirus being a big thing in the UK, you know, and, and how everything was about to change. And uh, I remember not knowing whether that test was going to happen, you know, and starting because it was it was changing so fast. Um, and, and it was about two days before that yeah. second test that we went, right, no, this is a huge thing. And actually, uh, we pulled out of it just before the circuit cancelled it because, you know, we were watching the news and, and it was just clear that this was a, a big deal. And and one of the factors was even if the circuit runs it, is it responsible for us to be going and doing an extreme sport at this time when we know uh, when, when we're being told that the NHS is about to be overwhelmed, there won't be hospital, hospital beds, there won't be ventilators. Well, it's you know not responsible of us to, to do a sport where, you know, if worse comes to worse, you might need that. Um, so because either you won't get a bed or, or you'll be taking up one of someone who needs it. So, yeah, we, we obviously um, stopped the testing program. And then about a week later, the whole country went into lockdown. And uh, we had no idea, you know, when the racing was, was going to start again or if we'd ever get any races in that year. Um, and it wasn't sort of immediate, but obviously we were all locked down at home. We couldn't really sort of go anywhere or do anything other than going out for runs and, you know, trying to stay fit. And uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but there was the prime minister gave a speech where he said, uh, what we need is volunteers for the NHS. Uh, We need people to help out. And at the time, okay, I was doing things, but I was spending a lot of time just at home and uh, feeling a bit helpless that I that I couldn't help. So I I just said, yeah, sure, I'll I'll, um, you know, go and register to to be one of these volunteers um and i mean i don't want to <laughs> make out that i was some sort of superhero in this i mean for starters lots and lots of people signed up to do this but um it was just really simple things like um checking in on people who were isolating i mean not literally obviously because because uh, <laughs> they were contagious with covid but um <laughs> uh you know phoning them up checking they're okay checking they've got the things they need um you know if they didn't have food or other essentials um there was a way of sort of feeding that information back and making sure someone got them what they needed it was just that kind of thing really which um to be honest was only small things but um it was just something to do to help in that in that gap when we couldn't even go racing or anything and that's given me a good segue so (laughs) you talk about helping people and um how you felt a bit helpless and you wanted to do more and for anyone that knows me or has listened to the podcast or or seen on instagram or anything like that i'm a huge fan of racing pride and everything that racing pride is doing and if people aren't aware (laughs) you basically came up with the idea of racing pride so can you talk to us a little bit more about that and how you first came up with this? I know you didn't do it just on your own, but um, how did it kind of come together? Yeah, so <laughs> guilty as charged that uh, Racing Pride in uh, some ways is, uh, yeah, it's my baby. But um, so, uh, so I am gay and um, I hadn't always found motorsport the easiest place um, to be gay necessarily. Um, and my partner's also in motorsport on the engineering side um, as well. And I was aware that there must be, you know, LGBTQ plus people across motorsport. And yet I didn't feel like there was any sense of 
community within that in that I wasn't aware of ever having raced against another LGBTQ plus driver uh, in all the um, serious racing I've done. Um, and the image of the sport historically had been one that was quite macho, um, that um, sort of emphasized, you know, the heroic womanizing drivers of, you know, the 70s and those kind of images. And that didn't feel like it was me or that it represented me. Mm. And I'd struggled a little bit at times in my career as well with, you know, not necessarily direct homophobia, but little bits of, of things that have made me when you're questioning whether you're going to be welcome anyway or whether you fit the image anyway, that it made me worry more about it. So just hearing people around paddocks using, you know, unhelpful words and, and things like that. And, you know, unfortunately, there have been one or two instances as well when I'd just been starting to try to come out to some people where, um, you know, I had had little bits of direct homophobia. And I thought, though, the sport, you know, it isn't actually this backward place. I think there are a lot of people in motorsport who want to make it a really welcoming, inclusive environment um, and would be shocked if they felt that they were excluding people from that. I just don't think the sport knew how to channel that positivity. Um, I think people who wanted to support inclusion in motorsport didn't really know how to go about it. Um, and the upshot of all of this was that motorsport, to me, looked quite different to other sports. I'd seen football and rugby and cricket and all these other games, uh, you know, embracing things like Stonewall's Rainbow Laces, but I wasn't seeing it from motorsport. Mm. And so I wanted to start to change that, basically, although it didn't start off as initially a, a plan for a big movement, but it just quickly evolved that way. The way it started was watching Rainbow Laces in 2018, which was exactly the same time as I was having my first tests for Aspire. Um, watching that unfold and realizing motorsport wasn't doing it. And I thought, well, you know, uh, the problem is a lack of visibility. And I, and I said to myself, well, Richard, you're a gay person in motorsport and you're not saying anything about it. So, you know, no wonder there's no visibility. No wonder nobody knows about gay people in motorsport because you are one and you're not saying anything. Um, so I posted on my Instagram just a picture of me and my boyfriend um, starting to say, basically, I'm a gay driver and that's not always been easy in motorsport, but it's great to see Rainbow Laces happening and I hope motorsport could do something. And that got picked up on by the guy at Sky Sports who coordinated the Rainbow Laces coverage. And um, we started chatting and, yeah, quite quickly it came into, right, well, we need to create a little bit of a movement. We need to get some of the right people together. So we started assembling some ambassadors and people we thought we could help. And we had a meeting at Stonewall UK, um, which helped us to sort of coordinate it even more and, and, and get a bit of a plan together. And we just kept working on it. And yeah, mid-2019, mid June 2019, we launched it to the world. <laughs> it's interesting you bring up about how there was lack of visibility, but you didn't feel that that was necessarily accurate in the world of motorsport. And I feel the same that the more I delve deeper and speak to more people, it feels that like motorsport, especially within the karting community, and outside of maybe the bigger sports like F1, um, there is such a sense of community. And I'm not saying that there's, because I've heard some horror stories as well, but, you know, I think for the most part it is a community-based and there is this feeling of everyone's kind of in it to raise, you know, each other up and do well, but also, you know, it's a bit more, I, you know, they say grassroots, but it is, I guess, a community-based thing. Um, and it does beg the question, uh, you know, as you said, you kind of had to step up and create racing pride to, to start that visibility. Why does the onus always fall on the minorities, though? Why does it always fall on the people who are most affected by it, do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting kind of way of, of framing the question. I mean, yeah, uh, you're right that karting has a, a bit of a community. I, and I'm also glad to say that karting is one of the areas of the sport that's changing fastest uh, in a lot of these strands of uh, diversity and inclusion, particularly when it comes to uh, female participation in the sport. There are so many more girls karting now than there were when I did, uh, which is great to see. Um, in terms of uh, why it sort of falls yeah. to minorities to this. I mean, 
yeah, to some extent, uh, the ideal scenario would have been that there was no need to ever say anything or that the governing body was already, you know, doing things like other other sports. But I think actually it's one of the great things about Racing Pride, from my perspective, that it's something authentic, that it comes from people who've actually experienced these things going through the sport um, uh, rather than it being some faceless campaign. You know, it's it's people who, who say, yeah. this is what I felt, this is what's happened to me. But also, um, it, it, Racing Pride has always tried to be a positive campaign and to provide sort of positive role models by talking about the ways that these ambassadors have had a great time in motorsport and great success in motorsport and LGBTQ plus people are throughout the sport and are doing great things. So in a way, perhaps it shouldn't have been me who started it. But on the other hand, I think it is a big strength of Racing Pride that it was a group of people genuinely from the LGBTQ plus community and genuinely embedded in the sport who, uh, who wanted to talk about those experiences. Yeah, and I guess it also comes down to the thing, and I, I don't like to plead ignorance or anything like that, but I guess it comes down to the thing of a lot of people don't know that there are issues until the issues are highlighted. Like I will use this as an example, but I mean, George Floyd really was a tipping point in terms of racism globally and something that a lot of people just went, oh my gosh. And and now there's an active push, I guess, for people to be anti-racist. And I guess in a way, race, I, I mean, I don't want to try and align it exactly, but in a way, I guess Racing Pride has done that as well, that you've given the voice. So now people are like, oh, I didn't actually realize that this was an issue because they hadn't experienced it themselves. Yeah, I think there's just loads of things that people didn't think about. And and um, I'm not saying that, you know, <laughs> they're bad people or they're prejudiced for not having thought about these things. It just hadn't occurred to them. Um, and, you know, I, I still get people saying, oh, look, there's, there is no discrimination in motorsport or, or anything. And, and yet, you know, still it's true that there isn't as much diversity in the sport as perhaps there should be. Um, and I think it, it's a case, as you say, if people just don't realise things because they haven't experienced them. And then what things like Racing Pride do, the initiatives that Hamilton is spearheading, they make people aware of things that they haven't experienced themselves. And then you do find people going, oh, well, we should do something about this. Um, as I say, the, the founding of Racing Pride was done optimistically that there are great people in the sport who want to make it open to everyone. And now we've started talking about these issues. We are finding huge support from the mm-hmm. community going, well, yeah, let's make it an inclusive place where everyone feels they can be themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And we were talking offline before, obviously, we started the podcast and how everyone's story is different. And even if you are are a gay person in the sport, doesn't mean that your experience is going to be the exact same as someone else. So I think, as you said, it's authentic and you're telling authentic stories and your ambassadors are great. I've obviously spoken to a few of them. Um, but yeah, it, it it's, it's so true in the fact that it's just about, you, you do it with such a, a, a in a, such a positive way there's no aggression or you know it, it's just such a loving community and it's it's such a beautiful way to kind of make it visible and acknowledge it but also hey here's what we can be doing here are some positive steps forward this is you know how we want to see change and I think it's it's incredible what you're doing thank you well I'm, I'm very glad you you see it in that way and I, I think as well the other thing about Racing Pride is, um, yes, I want to encourage LGBTQ plus people into motorsport and I want to have the people who are in motorsport already have a better experience and a more inclusive experience. But it's also about what motorsport can do um, because motorsport has a huge reach um, and it touches people far beyond the sport itself. And I think Racing Pride is one of the ways in which motorsport can do some good for its followers for its fans for the people who engage with motorsport around the world um and i said when we launched the aston martin f1 uh partnership one of the questions was why is this significant i said it was the first time that a formula one team a world championship level team has said to lgbtq plus people around the world you are valid you are valued and you are welcome here 
And I think the power of that is enormous. You know, those people might not be directly involved in motorsport themselves, but they feel so validated when they see the sport talking to them and addressing them. And I think the other thing is that um, people watching the sport, engaging with the sport, who perhaps haven't thought about these issues before, will become allies. You know, they, they, they look up to these people in the sport. And when they see someone like Sebastian Vettel saying allyship matters, we can help to create a whole host of allies around the world on the power of that. I mean, Sebastian Vettel has just been incredible. And I, 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 I'm a fan of Seb, but um, it, him wearing that shirt in Hungary as well was, it, it's just honestly, it's so lovely to see that active um, encouragement and people getting actively involved. And I, I think you're right. It's kind of the first time that people are actually doing this and making a statement and saying, hey, like, this is where motorsport is and this is where we want it to be. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, you know, as a kid, couldn't have envisaged an F1 driver doing what Seb did in Hungary or imagine that happening. Um, but I think it's a great example of um, exactly how I hoped Racing Pride would work in that we have this partnership, obviously, with Aston Martin F1 team. And Seb had raced with the Rainbow Halo on his car in Pride Month as part of that and obviously was very aware of everything that we were doing. And once he's you know become aware of this within motorsport and aware of what was happening in Hungary, he's gone, well... Of course, I want to do something to help um, and and to be a really positive ally. So, I mean, that really is kind of everything that we hoped for Racing Pride uh, embodied there. And I think it's just incredible for someone in his position to use their voice in such a positive way. And how does that feel for you personally in the fact that you have just made a statement on Instagram and now this has kind of, I guess, snowballed in a positive way in in such a positive move forward? Do you ever just think like, oh, do you take any credit for any of it? Are you just, <laughs> you just pinch yourself and think like, wow, I'm, I'm part of the reason this is happening? <laughs> I mean, it still, to be honest, feels very... Surreal, you know, when you when you uh, I think the most real moment for me was going into the Aston Martin F1 factory to record the video for the announcement um, where I was talking about, um, you know, what it was like for me being gay coming into motorsport and what it means to have Aston Martin F1 partnering with Racing Pride. That was the most kind of real moment for me. But when you you see on the telly the the rainbow halos and, and what Seb's doing somehow you still feel like, you know, is this really the thing that I'm part of that, that made this happen? You know, there's a little bit of, uh, of uh, somehow a bit of psychological detachment there, I guess, because you think, oh, it can't, it can't be what I did, you know. But, um, yeah, it's incredible, really. But uh, it's it's been a lot of work, you know. It's uh, every day just trying to push it forward a little bit, mm. to be honest. You know, I, I think pretty much every day since we – well, since before we launched Racing Pride, I, I've spent some time trying to do something to move the movement forward, to you know get somebody new connected, to uh, reach some new community or, or whatever. And it's just the little steps that all build up. Yeah, absolutely. I have to say, when I saw both the videos of yourself and Matt Bishop um, with Aston Martin, I, I admit I got a little bit emotional. It was just really lovely to see and it feels really you know, I, I don't know, it's such a positive move forward. And it's one of those things that, are, again, like you said, you, do, you don't realise um, how important it is um, to the community and how seeing that will affect someone's life, not even just in motorsport, but just in someone's life, you know, outside of motorsport, whatever. It's just so important to see that. Yeah, I mean, uh, a couple of things on that. I mean, firstly, obviously, Racing Pride could not have got where it has got without the help of, you know, the fantastic ambassadors and directors and other people we have associated, of, of which Matt Bishop is one. Um, there are probably too many to, to mention here, but look on the Racing Pride website and, and you'll find them. Our ambassadors have each yeah. <laughs> contributed something massive to the development of Racing Pride. Um but yeah, it, it, it does have this ability to, to touch people. And um, 
I mean, when you asked, is it is it personal what Seb was doing? I know the thing that went through my mind when I saw his Same Love t-shirt in Hungary um, was how I felt when I'd first heard that song by Macklemore, Same Love, um, which was at the time of the equal marriage votes in Britain. Yeah. Um, and I remember listening to that song and it, it touching me, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and me crying to it and, um to know that that was also the song in Seb's mind when he did that that was a strangely personal kind of connection and and the other thing was my first boyfriend um was a massive fan of Sebastian Vettel and this was back when he was dominating with Red Bull and his bedroom was full of models of Sebastian Vettel's car and and all of this um and obviously we used to watch the races together and he'd get so excited to see Vettel winning um our relationship broke up essentially because his parents didn't approve of it and they broke us up. And to think now what it, what it would have meant to him, what it must mean to him now to see his hero um, actively supporting gay people around the world. um, You know, that, that validation is, is so incredibly powerful and personal to so many people. I have absolute chills because I too, even now listening listening to that song, I still tear up. And um, just hearing your story just now, honestly, gives me goosebumps. That's uh, it's it's heartbreaking and 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 heartwarming at the same time. It's 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 a funny feeling. <laughs> yeah, I get that a lot. <laughs> I want to quickly go on to something else positive you're doing through Racing Pride. So you recently teamed up with Jess Shanahan from Racing Mentor for the what you've called the 2021 Sponsorship Success Academy. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about what the sponsorship is all about? Um, and you ultimately, I think you ended up with two drivers that you that you ended up choosing. What will that mean for them? Yeah, so uh, Jess Shanahan and Racing Mentor um, really are absolute leaders in helping uh, drivers across motorsport disciplines and internationally to achieve their racing ambitions by securing sponsorship, but ultimately. But as part of that, um, Jess and Racing Mentor um, coach them on how to create a brand and an identity in motorsport, which will ultimately um, be a brand that people want to associate with and, and help to secure sponsorship. And the Sponsorship Success Academy is an intensive three-month course um, going through all those aspects of brand building, but also how you might think of which sponsors to approach, how you might approach them, how deals should be structured, fundamental sort of knowledge for people looking to professionalize their motorsport. Um and Jess reached out to us, a massive supporter of Racing Pride and what we're doing, and, and said, would you like to be part of this project, this uh, intensive course? And we'd be willing to offer a funded scholarship place on it for a member of the LGBTQ plus community to have access to this knowledge and to build up their brand and uh, ultimately, hopefully, to achieve success in their careers. Um, so we put out a call for LGBTQ plus people to nominate themselves or somebody they know to be part of the academy. And we had some fantastic applications. And in the end, there were two applications that we absolutely couldn't choose between. Um, and Jess at Racing Mentor said, well, let's offer two scholarship places then. Um, and as you rightly point out, we have Bayer, um, who is in New Zealand. Um, and we were really struck by the mother-daughter nature of her racing. So she mostly races utes. Um, and um, <laughs> she said that her and her mum do most of the mechanicing and the preparation. I know it, it sounds amazing to me that they go and race these utes but um i think she races pretty much anything she can get a chance to um and (laughs) just yeah i mean the traditional image of motorsport tends to be you know dad lad father son um and here was a a mother daughter team um and uh wanting to champion the lgbtq plus community so we thought that was fantastic and want to help her um and there's also 
Milan Fassot, who is a uh, trans young Dutch carter, uh, 16 years old, um, already been a champion in one of the entry level classes in karting in the Netherlands. Um, and again, we just felt a really uh, worthwhile person to support. So we've, um, yeah, selected those two scholars and we really hope that they will learn through the academy and uh, it'll help them to build their careers. Now, I was going to ask what are some of the benefits that are coming out of Racing Pride, but I think you've kind of just hit the nail on the head. You've kind of answered my question before I had it. But is are things like this, obviously you plan to eventually do more things like this, and just within that you've obviously helped these two young drivers, um, you know, and, and one thing that we talked about before is um, – not having the finances behind you can ultimately set you back as a driver. It can almost make or break you. It doesn't matter how talented you are. Not having access to resources and um, funding is is really um, crucial in your driving uh, careers. So will something like this, I mean, obviously the hope is that something like this will make sure that these two drivers are going to get the benefit of the scholarship. I'm absolutely rambling. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I completely get what you're you're talking about. Yeah, it's it's um, <laughs> it's the yeah. The, I mean, funding is always going to be crucial in motorsport, and um, one of the issues has been for the LGBTQ plus community is just the lack of role models that there's been in the sport. Um, you know, it has been. Uh, <laughs> quite a number of decades since we had an LGBTQ plus person in Formula One, um, to our knowledge. (laughs) And even that person was not out at the time openly, publicly, um, to the fans or anything. So that lack of of visibility um, has been a major issue. And how do you get visibility at the top level? Well, funding is going to be an absolutely crucial part of that. You know, something that we're showing really through Racing Pride, through our ambassadors we've got and the spotlight stories that we tell is that there are talented LGBTQ plus individuals in lots of areas of the sport. Um, we just need to find a way of getting the backing to them that they need um, to, to make their careers happen and to provide that visibility. Yeah, and you talk about ambassadors, and one of your ambassadors who I've had on the show is Sarah Moore, and she actually became, I think, the first openly gay um, driver to be on a podium on an F1 weekend. Um, Granted, that was through W Series, but it was still shared with the F1 um, weekend. So, I mean, things like that are just absolutely incredible. Like, did you think that when you started this, you would start breaking down those barriers and creating those I know obviously it's it's an ambassador role but still you've you've created this community which is now saying hey motorsport here we are and we're going to show you what we're what we're all about yeah I mean Sarah has been on board with Racing Pride since before Racing Pride was launched to the public she was one of our launch ambassadors a great friend of mine um, and she always does everything she can to use her platform to promote racing pride, uh, which I'm extremely grateful for. And the timing of her podium couldn't have been better in Pride Month. And uh, while W Series had rainbow logos on their cars to show their support, and uh, while Aston Martin was running the rainbow halo on its car as well, um, and it created so much visibility around that Austrian Grand Prix weekend, Um, I think we were all a bit bowled over by uh, the reaction um, across social media to this achievement and just how widespread it was and how much it meant to so many people. But yeah, Sarah was, as I fully expected, absolutely fantastic. And and it was just another of those landmark moments um, that uh, fortunately we've been able to to create collectively. Um, And I did always hope that we would get to a position uh, like this. I didn't know when it was going to happen or how long it was going to take, but I always felt when we were starting Racing Pride, and you know, perhaps this sounds arrogant in a way, but I thought the message was so important, and I knew that we were the first people to be doing that message in motorsport um, in a serious, sustained way anywhere in the world, and I always believed that it was going to become something massive because I believed that this was necessary and that there were lots of people across motorsport 
who want to create that inclusive space and would see this as a as a means of doing it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We've talked about all the positives, but what are some of the hurdles that you now have and and that Racing Pride faces, if there is any? Um, <laughs> well, we certainly have faced lots of hurdles with with Racing Pride. Um, you know, it was. I think from the outside, sometimes it can look like it was, you know, bashing in an open door, you know, that it was all a, an easy uh, thing to, to push through. But, you know, certainly in the early days, that was very, very far from the case. Um, I think there's a reluctance in professional sport to associate your brand with anything that isn't yet itself a credible, legitimate brand. So when we were trying to get the campaign up and running, that was quite a challenge to convince people that we were the people to be doing this. And that's why ambassadors like Sarah, like Matt, were absolutely crucial um, in those early stages. Um, And getting over sort of hurdles of of understanding. um, So, you know, there was a series I spoke to early on that was considering supporting Racing Pride. And I spoke to one of the directors of the series and they said, the thing is, we don't have any gay people in our series um, or associated with our series. And so why is this relevant for us? Why are we talking about it? And I mean, this was a series that across its main paddock and its support paddock must have employed 5,000 people, you know, in terms of mechanics, team members and so on. And they were telling me we don't have any gay people. And I thought, well, either you don't and there's a real problem, you know, (laughs) how have you not got anyone from the LGBTQ plus community (laughs) within that many people um you must be putting them off if that's true (laughs) but also what it suggested to me is you do but you don't know about it because they're not out because they can't feel comfortable in that space so this is exactly why it's needed um so yeah that that was one barrier just getting people to understand and and ultimately to commit to buy in to help make it a success um one of the things we're working very hard on at the moment is expanding racing pride in terms of the motorsport disciplines um, that we represent and in terms of internationally. And again, we're just reliant on having those partners, those ambassadors who are willing to take that leap of faith really in racing pride and what racing pride is doing and say, well, yeah, we're going to get on board with this. We're going to help to make it happen, to make it a success. Um, you know, it's always going to need those early people who um, decide to to be part of it, um, you know, to put their kind of reluctance to one side a little bit and to embrace what we're doing. Um, so, yeah, I'm just so incredibly grateful to the people who have done that. Um, but obviously, yeah, we're going to keep needing more of those as we grow. Yeah. And in your opinion, do you think um, perceptions have shifted in regards to inclusion in motorsport? Like, have you seen a big shift? Um, I do think we are getting there. Um, and something I've definitely seen a shift in is that we are now having these conversations far more than we ever used to in motorsport. You know, in 2019, it was very rare for anyone to be discussing diversity and inclusion in motorsport. It wasn't just thought about really uh it's not that people didn't think it would it was a an issue it's just that people didn't think about it full stop (laughs) really to be honest Mm. um and now we are having those discussions you know right up to the highest level um and i think that has been a really significant early shift i mean the challenge now for motorsport will be turning those good intentions that we're starting to generate in those discussions into actions across the sport that impact people throughout the sport and beyond. And how do we as a motorsport community do that? Like what's the starting point? Is it having this representation from the major drivers like Seb Vettel? Um, Like in particular with, I guess, I don't want to just speak about F1, but I know from experience that sometimes the F1 community can be a little bit um, closed off, shut off. Um, How do we as a motorsport community, what are the small steps that we as fans, colleagues, um, drivers be doing to, to make this more sustainable, I suppose? Yeah. So, I mean, everyone can help racing pride in what we're doing. Um, I mean, just, Honestly, it helps a huge amount when people simply follow our social medias at Racing Pride HQ and uh, help to share our content and retweet and tweet supportive comments and 
you know, like the Instagram posts and all that kind of thing, um, because it shows decision makers in motorsport that the fans care about this. And I think importantly, too, what it starts to do, similarly to putting racing price stickers on your car, stickers available through our website, things like that, <laughs> um, it shows you as a visible ally of racing pride. And it and it's, uh, starts to create that that visibility that was lacking. I mean, one of the hardest things about coming out in any environment is not knowing how you're going to be received. But if you can see active, supportive people around you, then you know that you can come out in that environment. You know you can come out to them. So, yeah, doing all of those things is is massively helpful. We also have our Ally Pack, which is available through the website that you can read. There's top tips in there. It doesn't take long, but there are tips on how you can be a good ally to LGBTQ plus people around you. You can read that, share that, and so on, and all of that is going to, to help. Um so, yeah, I think there are lots of things that everyone can do just to uh, build up, um, firstly, the visibility of this as an issue and the visibility of support for the LGBTQ plus community. And what are, what are your hopes and dreams, your ultimate goal, I guess, with Racing Pride? Where do you want to see it in five years, let's say? <laughs> well, I'd love Racing Pride to uh, be a... Uh, a movement which truly embraces all disciplines of motorsport and which has spread internationally into different series um, because I would like to see every series in motorsport seriously engaging with diversity and inclusion and creating an inclusive environment that includes not just public PR. Um, I'm putting rainbows on things is great but also includes action behind that, includes uh, teams, championship series, thinking about the welfare of LGBTQ plus personnel, creating actually inclusive environments. And I would like to see visible LGBTQ plus allies and role models um, at the highest levels of the sport. And I actually watched you on the Black Book Motorsport um, virtual uh, panel, I suppose, and and you brought up how um, it was a really actually very valid point and something really I hadn't even considered, but definitely should have been considered. Um, and that is when places when championships like F one race in places like Saudi, how um, the what protocols are in place to protect, I guess, the more vulnerable colleagues of the team. Do you think that now those things are being reviewed? Yeah, so Racing Pride uh, doesn't just exist to give uh, visibility and awareness, but also to give education and direct active support. And one of the really important things about our partnership with Aston Martin is that we've been working with uh, their HR department, their management. We've been running workshops for all team members. We've been reviewing HR policies. And as part of that, we've also been looking at the advice that they're going to give around travel to territories such as that um, in order to make sure that LGBTQ plus people um, within uh, the sports feel that they are uh, being listened to and that, you know, perhaps their concerns are being heard in ways that were not the case previously. You know, I, I think previously people wouldn't even have talked about the issues of going to these places um, to make sure that they're being listened to and to make sure that they are going to be as safe as possible when working in these environments. And I think that's one of the major achievements of Racing Pride to seriously start those conversations. And it's not just Aston Martin. We've spoken with several other teams. And for instance, we uh, helped Williams uh, to launch the Pride work stream of its Respect at Williams initiative, which is also all about um, staff welfare uh, uh, across the business. So yeah, I think it is an important step for the sports to now be thinking about that when it increasingly goes to territories which might not have the same level of LGBTQ plus rights as we have here in the UK. I mean, it sounds like a lot of work, but it's also so necessary. And I'm I'm so glad that you are now opening up these channels for conversation and, and making active change. I think that's so important. And as you said, only two years ago, this, this wasn't really happening. So it's amazing how quickly that's 
um, come about, I suppose. Just before we wrap up, I just want to ask you, what is your, what's been your favorite part of your career so far? <laughs> uh, oh, that's really, uh, <laughs> really tricky. Uh, Cause there've <laughs> been some great moments. Uh, I mean, this year, um, well, I think the most important part of, of, of my career actually is probably when I uh, moved to Spire Sports Cars, um, you know, for the reasons I gave earlier, it was just a huge uh, uh, relief as much as anything for my career to be in an environment where I knew I had the equipment and I had the budget and it was fine. Um, probably the, the one of the biggest moments for me was this year at Snetterton in the Brit Car Endurance Championship. We were having the most horrific uh time up until the first race so it was torrential rain aquaplaning everywhere oh horrendous conditions in warm-up uh when my teammate was driving the car um the throttle had stuck open um and he'd had to he's got no option but to crash it head on into the barrier um and had uh you know scrapped the front of the car and that, that all needed to be replaced uh, in qualifying, someone ran into the back of the car while I was driving it, did some damage to the diffuser, uh, and it was all looking like a nightmare. And, um, you know, it's one of those times where you <laughs> literally was sat in the team truck and was like, do I even want to get in the car again? But, of course, you're a professional, so you, you have to. You know, there's realistically no choice. You're going to do it. And then the two races we had that day, we had two one-hour races, um, and we won them both. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, it you know, was uh, uh, just such an intense uh, day for me to uh, have come back from that feeling of like, you know, this couldn't get any worse, things are so bleak, to then uh, winning those two races. And the other special thing was that was the first day that um, CW Performance had run as its own independent team. And just the level of emotion and intensity within that team was enormous that day. And I think those are kind of feelings that I'm not going to forget in a hurry. That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> All hope was lost, but you came through in the end. <laughs> yeah, it really was like that. And it was, uh, yeah, as I say, just that intensity of emotion, especially with it being the first time that the team had run the car independently. It was, um, yeah, just uh, enormous. You know, uh, my teammate never normally shows any emotion, but uh, I heard him, uh, you know, I suspect slightly crying on the radio. You're <laughs> <laughs> certainly struggling to speak. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was intense. <laughs> we encourage crying. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Lando Norris has normalised that. Oh yeah, no, I love. I I mean, come on, as if you're not going to cry. <laughs> I mean, so far I've managed to not do it in a racing car while driving, but you know, we'll see. There's time. Yeah, <laughs> your career's not over yet. <laughs> so what is your ultimate goal or your dream destination for your career? Do you have one is, or is it ever-changing? Um, so I actually don't like being one of those drivers who sort of says, I have to drive this car or that series or, you know, this is the end point because I just love the sport and I love racing. And if I can be in a position where, you know, I have the finances and, and the team to be able to drive a top racing car you know to to be able to to race anything in an exciting series um then that's fantastic but um obviously i'd love to race in the big uh endurance races prototype gt races in the world you know particularly looking at events like uh daytona le mans um bathurst events like that um it'd just be a dream to to be involved well, when you come to Bathurst, definitely let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Will do. <laughs> now, finally, just before I finish up, if you could speak to a young Richard Morris, what advice would you give? Um, so, I mean, corny as it, as it might sound, I think I'd say just don't wait so long to be yourself uh, in the sport. I... Um, initially told you know a couple of people in the sport I thought I might be a just my close friends you know uh relatively early on but um I then pretty much went back into the closet because um the reactions were not perhaps everything I'd hoped 
Um, and so I went through most of my racing career, you know, right up till late 2018, um, not talking about any of this. Um, and it has been such a positive thing since I did come out. Um, I have had, I got huge support at Spire. My team now are massively supportive. My teammate Chippy is the best ally. Um, and it has made me feel comfortable in my racing environment uh, in a way that I don't think would have been possible before. So I think, you know, I'd, I'd want to say to myself that, look, really, if anything, I should have done that earlier on. I mean, it wouldn't have been easy, but it certainly would have been the right thing to do to just be myself um, throughout my career because that has been such an enormous positive now. Well, just by being your genuine, authentic self, it's you've created something that's pretty spectacular and is going to change the lives of so many people. I know it may not seem like that sometimes, but absolutely what you're doing is incredible. And I'm shocked it didn't happen sooner, but I'm glad it's now happening and it happened when it did. Um, and Richard, like credit where credit's due, what you've done is absolutely amazing and we all know that I'm a big fan of what Racing Pride is doing and I just can't wait to see what else is you know coming up in the future and all the amazing things that are going to come out of Racing Pride. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me it's been an absolute pleasure Um, I, I, I as I said I can't wait to see where everything goes and I just really appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome it's been great fun chatting to you. On the next episode of The Female Drive, I speak with Gary Connolly, who along with his wife Monique created an organisation called Racing Together. Racing Together was created for the Indigenous youth of Australia to introduce them to the world of motorsport. We discuss how it came about, where they want to take it, and why this initiative is so important. <laughs>